Hi everyone, it's Ellen. We're going to kick off this term by reading chapter 15. Chapter 15 is on the sun and it's titled The Sun, a Garden Variety Star. So garden variety just means an average star. There's really nothing particularly special about our sun except that it gives us most of the energy on Earth. Okay, the chapter has four sections. 15.1 is on the structure and composition of the sun, so we'll look what's to see what's inside the sun and what it's made of. 15.2 is on the solar cycle, so we'll think about how the uh, activity of the sun varies over time in a periodic fashion. 15.3 is on that solar activity that we see above the photosphere. And then 15.4 is on space weather, so how solar activity can affect, um, well, the weather in space. There's a figure, uh, like an opening figure for the chapter, and the caption reads, figure 15.1, R star. The sun, our local star, is quite average in many ways. However, that does not stop it from being a fascinating object to study. From solar flares and coronal mass ejections, like the one seen coming from the sun in the top right of this image, and I actually I think they meant top left. The sun is a highly dynamic body at the center of our solar system. This image combines two separate satellite pictures from the sun. The inner one, which is really tiny, uh, from the Solar Dynamics Observatory, and the outer one from the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory. There are a couple of opening paragraphs, and they read, Space weather may sound like a contradiction. How can there be weather in the vacuum of space? Yet space weather, which refers to the changing conditions in space, is an active field of research and can have profound effects on Earth. We're all familiar with the ups and downs of weather on Earth and how powerful storms can be devastating. Although we're separated from the sun by a large distance, as well as by the vacuum of space, through which no sound can travel, by the way, we now understand that great outbursts on the sun, solar storms in effect, can cause changes in the atmosphere and magnetic field of Earth, sometimes even causing serious problems on the ground. In this chapter, we will explore the nature of the sun's outer layers, the changing conditions and activity there, and the ways that the sun affects Earth. By studying the sun, we also learn much that helps us understand stars in general. The sun is, in astronomical terms, a rather ordinary star. It's not unusually hot, it's not unusually cold, it's not unusually old, or it's not unusually young. It's not really that small, and it's not really that large. Indeed, we are lucky that the sun is typical. Just as studies of Earth help us understand observations of the more distant planets, so too does the sun serve as a guide to astronomers in interpreting the messages contained in the light we receive from distant stars. As you will learn, the sun is dynamic, continuously undergoing change, balancing the forces of nature to keep itself in equilibrium. In this chapter, we describe the components of the sun how it changes with time, and how those changes affect Earth. Let's begin with the first section. The first section is titled The Structure and Composition of the Sun. There are learning objectives for the section, and they are such that by the end of the section you should be able to explain how the composition of the Sun differs from that of Earth, describe the various layers of the Sun and their functions, and explain what happens in the different parts of the Sun's atmosphere. So you want to pay attention to each of these things.
The sun, like all stars, is an enormous ball of extremely hot, largely ionized gas shining under its own power. Note that it said that all stars are like that. And we do mean enormous. The sun could fit 109 Earths side by side across in its diameter. And it has enough volume or takes up enough space to hold about 1.3 million Earths. The sun doesn't have a solid surface or continents like Earth, nor does it have a solid core. However, it does have a lot of structure and can be discussed as a series of layers, not unlike an onion. In this section, we describe the huge changes that occur in the sun's extensive interior and atmosphere, and the dynamic and violent eruptions that occur daily in its outer layers. Some of the basic characteristics of the sun are listed in Table 15.1. Although some of the terms in that table may be unfamiliar to you right now, you will get to know them as you read further. So the table uh, is titled Characteristics of the Sun, and it's really talking about the physical properties of the sun. And it has three columns. The first one is characteristic, which really is just another word for physical property. The second column is titled how found. So it means how we found that physical property. And then the third column gives the value of that particular property. So a few of the properties listed, um, I'll just say them. One is the average distance from Earth. One is the mass of the sun. Uh, one is essentially its size, so what its diameter is. The density, which is easily calculated from the mass and the diameter. The solar constant, which is the approximate amount of light that we receive, or I should say radiation from the sun that we receive at the top of our atmosphere. The luminosity, or the, the sort of energy light output of radiation from the sun. The effective temperature and how quickly it rotates at the equator. So what we'll see about the sun is that it's, it really is a ball of gas. And just like a cup of soup, if you spin it around, um, you'll see that not all parts of the soup spin at the same speed. Same thing with the sun. It's just a big fluid, so it doesn't all rotate as a rigid body as our Earth does. So let's continue on. The composition of the sun's atmosphere. Let's begin by asking what the solar atmosphere is made of. And actually, I'll just take a moment and ask you, what do you think the sun is made of? And what do you think its atmosphere is made of? Have you ever thought about that? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> As explained in radiation and spectra, we can use a star's absorption line spectrum to determine what elements are present. It turns out that the sun contains the same elements as Earth, but not in the same proportions. About 73% of the sun's mass is hydrogen, and another 25% is helium. Now, just as a reminder, hydrogen is the smallest, least massive, most simple atom there is. It's, it's the most basic atom you can get one level up, slightly more complex, the very next more complex atom is helium. So the sun is made of some pretty basic stuff, or at least its atmosphere is. Okay, about 73% of the sun's mass is hydrogen and another 25% is helium. All the other chemical elements, including those we know and love in our own bodies, such as carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, make up only 2% of our star. The 10 most abundant gases in the sun's visible layers are listed in table 15.2. 
Examine that table and notice that the composition of the sun's outer layer is very different from Earth's crust where we live. In our planet's crust, the three most abundant elements are oxygen, silicon, and aluminum. They're what I would call mm, not really especially light elements, but you know, somewhat heavy elements. Although not like our planets, the makeup of the sun is quite typical of stars in general. So the table just lists the uh, elements that we see in the sun, the percentage by number of atoms, and then the percentage by the mass of those atoms. The fact that our sun and the stars all have similar compositions and are made up mostly of hydrogen and helium was first shown in a brilliant thesis in 1925 by Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin, the first woman to get a PhD in astronomy in the United States. However, the idea that the simplest light gases, hydrogen and helium, were the most abundant element in stars was so unexpected and so shocking that she assumed her analysis of the data must be wrong. At the time, she wrote, the enormous abundance derived for these elements in the stellar atmosphere is almost certainly not real. Even scientists sometimes find it hard to accept new ideas that don't agree with what everyone quote-unquote knows to be right. Before Payne Gaposchkin's work, everyone assumed that the composition of the sun and stars would be much like that of Earth. It's kind of a crazy thought right now. Anyway, it was three years until after her thesis that other studies proved beyond a doubt that the enormous abundance of hydrogen and helium in the sun is indeed real. And as we will see, the composition of the sun and the stars is much more typical of the makeup of the universe than the odd concentration of heavier elements that characterizes our planet. Most of the elements found in the sun are in the form of atoms with a small number of molecules. Those are just atoms bonded together, all in the form of gases. The sun is so hot that no matter can survive as a liquid or solid. In fact, the sun is so hot that many of the atoms in it are ionized, that is, stripped of one or more of their electrons. The electrons don't go away necessarily though, so this removal of electrons from their atoms means that there's a large quantity of free electrons and positively charged ions in the sun, making it an electrically charged environment quite different from the neutral one in which you are reading this text or maybe listening to it. Scientists call such a hot ionized gas as a plasma. So, in other words, the sun is so hot that everything has become vaporized or like a gas. And not only that, the vapor has been heated so much that the electrons have popped off. So you have these positive charged ions and these negatively charged electrons which are just flowing around in the atmosphere. So that's my interpretation of this paragraph for you. In the 19th century, scientists observed a spectral line at 530.3 nanometers in the sun's outer atmosphere, called the corona. It's a layer we'll discuss in a minute. All you need to know about a nanometer is that it's really small. It's one billionth of a meter. Okay, this line had never been seen before, and so it was assumed that this line was the result of an, a new element found in the corona, quickly named coronium. It was not until 60 years later that astronomers discovered that this emission was in fact due to highly ionized iron, iron with 13 of its electrons stripped off. This is how we first discovered that the sun's atmosphere had a temperature of more than a million degrees. By the way, there is no element called coronium, 
So we thought it was a different thing, and then we realized, nope, it's just iron that's missing 13 electrons. Oh my goodness, that must be hot. Let's look at the layers of the sun beneath the visible surface. All right, there's a figure here that I really encourage you to look at. It shows the sun's layers, kind of like when you see those pictures of Earth that have, show a cutaway of Earth where you see the core, the mantle, and the crust. This shows an analogous uh, cutaway of the sun. However, the layers are quite different, so I do encourage you to look at it. And it says 15.4, figure 15.4 shows what the sun would look like if we could see all the parts of it from the center to its outer atmosphere. The terms in the figure will become familiar to you as you read on. I'll read the caption of the figure. Figure 15.4, parts of the sun. This illustration shows the different parts of the sun from the hot core where the energy is generated through the regions where energy is transported outward first by radiation, then by convection, and then through the solar atmosphere. The parts of the atmosphere are also labeled the photosphere, chromosphere, and corona. Notice that that says parts of the atmosphere. Okay. Some typical features in the atmosphere are shown, such as coronal holes and prominences. All right, let's continue to the reading. The sun's layers are different from each other, and each plays an important part in producing the energy that the sun ultimately emits. We will begin with the core and work our way out through the layers. The sun's core is extremely dense and is the source of all its energy. Inside the core, nuclear energy is being released. Notice just for a moment that that says nuclear. If you ever hear someone say nuclear, they're not pronouncing the word correctly. So nuclear. Nuclear energy is being released. The core is approximately 20% or one-fifth the size of the solar interior and is thought to have a temperature of approximately 15 million kelvins, making it the hard, hottest part of the sun. Just a side note, a kelvin, um, when the number is very large, kelvins are essentially the same as Celsius. So they're, they're familiar in terms of increments, and when you're looking at millions of kelvins, you can almost say millions of Celsius and be very, um, very close. Okay, above the core is a region known as the radiative zone, named for the primary mode of transporting energy across it. This region starts at about 25% of the distance to the solar surface and extends up to about 70% of the way to the surface. The light generated in the core is transported through the radiative zone very slowly. Since the high density of matter in this region means a photon, which is essentially what we think of as a particle of light in a weird physics way, cannot travel too far without encountering a particle, causing it to change direction and lose some energy. So what it's saying is that there's a radiative zone close to the core and that light or radiation travels through the radiative zone through the form of radiation. So basically it's not carried by matter, it just flows from one place to another. The next layer, the next zone, is the convective zone, and that's the outermost layer of the solar interior. It is a thick layer of approximately 200,000 kilometers deep that transports energy from the edge of the radiative zone through the surface to the surface through giant convection cells, similar to a pot of boiling oatmeal. That's a great choice. Uh, the plasma at the bottom of the convective zone is extremely hot and it bubbles to the surface where it loses its heat to space. 
once the plasma cools, it sinks back to the bottom of the convective zone. Okay, so it's saying that the first layer is radiative zone. The light travels through radiation, which does not require matter to move. And actually, when it encounters matter, which is quite frequently, it changes direction. So it takes a long time to travel. The next zone is the convection zone. And that's where the energy is carried by matter. And it's carried by a fluid. So it bubbles up and then falls back down. Just like, I guess, oatmeal <laughs> is a funny choice, or boiling water, or an oven many times, like a convection oven. Okay, now that we have given a quick overview of the structure of the sun in this section, we will embark on a journey through the visible layers of the sun, beginning with the photosphere, the visible surface. Photosphere, I like that word because it's like you can take a picture of it. So if we take a picture, we see the photosphere, the visible part. The solar photosphere. Earth's air is generally transparent, but on a smoggy day in many cities, it can become opaque, which prevents us from seeing through it past a certain point. Something similar happens in the sun. Its outer atmosphere is transparent, allowing us to look a short distance through it. But when we try to look through the atmosphere deeper into the sun, our view is blocked. The photosphere is the layer where the sun becomes opaque and marks the boundary past which we cannot see. I actually prefer this analogy. If you've ever been in a plane and you're flying over the ground, um, usually you can see straight to the, the, the ground itself. You can see land, you can see plots of land, you can sometimes see cars, you know, if you're low enough. But when you fly through a cloud or if you're flying above an area and uh, it's a really foggy day, you can't see that stuff so well. So it's kind of like the sun constantly has that cloud or that fog and we call that portion through which we can't see, the photosphere. Okay, there's a figure that I'm going to read, uh, the caption for, figure 15.5, solar photosphere plus sunspots. This photograph shows the photosphere, the visible surface of the sun. Also shown is an enlarged group of sunspots. The size of Earth is shown for comparison. Sunspots appear darker because they are cooler than the surroundings. The typical temperature at the center of a large sunspot is about 3,800 Kelvin, whereas the photosphere has a temperature of about 5,800 Kelvin. And just to put that in perspective, remember that the core of the sun is close to 15 million Kelvin. As we saw, the energy that emerges from the photosphere was originally generated deep inside the sun. This energy is in the form of photons, which make their way slowly toward the solar surface. Just a side note, photon is a particle of light. Even though in physics we consider uh, light to be both a particle and a wave, the particle view really helps with conversation and helps with certain calculations. So we're going to use that for a while. Outside the sun, we can observe only those photons that are emitted into the solar photosphere, where the density of atoms is sufficiently low, and the photons can finally escape from the sun without colliding with another atom or ion. As an analogy, imagine that you're attending a big campus rally, let's imagine we're on campus, and have found a prime spot near the center of the action. Your friend arrives late and calls you on her cell phone and to ask you to join her at the edge of the crowd. You decide that friendship is worth more than a prime central spot, so you work your way through the dense crowd to meet her. You can move only a short distance before bumping into someone, changing direction and trying again, making your way slowly to the outside edge of the crowd. All this while, your efforts are not 
visible to your waiting friend at the edge. Your friend can't see you until you get very close to the edge because of all the bodies in the way. So, so too, photons making their way through the sun are constantly bumping into atoms, changing direction, working their way slowly outward and becoming visible only when they reach the atmosphere, the portion of the atmosphere of the sun where the density of atoms is too low to block their outward progress. Astronomers have found that the solar atmosphere changes from almost perfectly transparent to almost completely opaque in a distance of just over 400 kilometers. It is this thin region that we call the photosphere, a word that comes from the Greek for light sphere. When astronomers, when astronomers speak of the diameter of the sun, they mean the size of the region surrounded by the photosphere. The photosphere looks sharp only from a distance. If you were falling into the sun, which let's hope you don't, you would not feel any surface, but would just sense a gradual increase in the density of the gas surrounding you. It is much the same as falling through a cloud while skydiving. From far away, the cloud looks as if it were a sharp surface, but you don't feel a surface as you fall into it. I guess my analogy, because I've never skydived, <laughs> is walking into a fog. Okay, one big difference between those two scenarios, however, is the temperatures. The sun is so hot that you would be vaporized long before you reach the photosphere. Skydiving in Earth's atmosphere, or from my point of view, walking into a fog, is much safer. We might note that the atmosphere of the sun is not very dense, not a very dense layer compared to the air in the room where you are reading this text or listening to it. At a typical point in the atmosphere, the pressure is less than 10% of the Earth's pressure at sea level, and the density is about one ten thousandth of Earth's atmospheric density at sea level. Observations with telescopes show that the photosphere has a mottled appearance, resembling grains of rice spilled on a dark tablecloth or a pot of boiling oatmeal. Boy, they like the oatmeal. This structure of the photosphere is called granulation. Granules, which are typically 700 to 1,000 kilometers in diameter, about the width of Texas, appear as bright areas surrounded by narrow, darker, cooler regions. The lifetime of an individual granule is only about 5 to 10 minutes. Even larger are supergranules, which are about 35 kilometers across, which is about the size of two Earths, and they last about 24 hours. There's a figure, figure 15.6, and I'll read the caption. Granulation pattern. The surface markings of the convection cells create a granulation pattern on this dramatic image left, taken from the Japanese Hinode spacecraft. You can see the same pattern when you heat up miso soup. The right image shows an irregular-shaped sunspot and granules on the sun's surface, seen with the Swedish Solar Telescope on August 22, 2003. Okay, the motions of granules can be studied by examining the Doppler shifts in the spectra of gases just above them. The bright granules are columns of hotter gases rising at speeds of 2 to 3 kilometers per second from below the photosphere. As this rising gas reaches the photosphere, it spreads out, cools, and sinks down again into the darker regions above the granules. Measurements show that the centers of the granules are hotter than the intergranular regions by 50 to 100 K. 
there's a box here that says link to learning and these are actually quite fun so I do recommend that you look at the chapter and uh, visit these boxes and go through what they show. So this box says see the boiling action of granulation in this 30 second time-lapse video from the Swedish Institute for Solar Physics and of course there's a link to show you. The chromosphere. The sun's outer gases extend far beyond the photosphere. Because they are transparent to most visible radiation and emit only a small amount of light, these outer layers are difficult to observe. The region of the sun's atmosphere that lies immediately above the photosphere is called the chromosphere. Until this century, the chromosphere was visible only when the photosphere was concealed by the moon during a total solar eclipse. In the 17th century, the 1600s, so several observers described what appeared to them as a narrow red streak or fringe around the edge of the moon during a brief instant after the sun's photosphere had been covered. The name chromosphere, from the Greek word for colored sphere, was given to this red streak. Observations made during eclipses show that the chromosphere is about 2,000 to 3,000 kilometers thick, and its spectrum consists of bright emission lines, indicating that this layer is composed of hot gases emitting light at discrete wavelengths. The reddish color of the chromosphere arises from one of the strongest emission lines seen in the visible part of the spectrum, the bright red line caused by hydrogen, the element that, as we've already seen, dominates the composition of the sun. In 1868, observations of the chromospheric spectrum revealed a yellow emission line that did not co correspond to any previously known element on Earth. Scientists quickly realized that they had found a new element and named it helium, after helios, the Greek word for sun. It took until 1895 for helium to be discovered on our planet. Today, students are probably most familiar with it as the light gas used to inflate balloons, although it turns out to be the second most abundant element in the universe. Just a side note, isn't it insane that we didn't really know about helium until 1868 when we looked at the sun and then 1895 when we actually found it on Earth? Seems like such a common thing for us now. The temperature of the chromosphere is about 10,000 Kelvin. This means the chromosphere is hotter than the photosphere that lies beneath, which should seem surprising. In all situations we're familiar with, the temperatures fall as one moves away from the source of heat. And the chromosphere is farther from the center of the sun than the photosphere is. Think about it. The core of the sun is 15 million Kelvin. The photosphere has an average temperature of about 5,800 Kelvin. And the layer just above it has an average temperature of about 10,000 Kelvin. That's insane. The transition region. The increase in temperature does not stop with the chromosphere. Above it is a region in the solar atmosphere where the temperature changes from 10,000 Kelvin, which is typical of the chromosphere, to nearly a million degrees. The hottest part of the solar atmosphere, which has a temperature of a million degrees or more, is called the corona. Appropriately, the part of the sun where the rapid temperature rise occurs is called the transition region. It is probably only a few tens of kilometers thick. Figure 15.8 summarizes how the temperature of the solar atmosphere changes from the photosphere outward. 
and it just shows the temperature drop through the photosphere, go up a little in the chromosphere, and then rise dramatically through the transition region to the corona. In 2013, NASA launched the Interface Region Imaging Spectrograph, it's called IRIS for short, to study the transition region to understand better uh, how and why the sharp temperature increase occurs. IRIS is the first space mission that is able to obtain high spatial resolution images of the different features produced over this wide temperature range to see how they change with time and location. Figure 15.4 and the red graph in figure 15.8 make the sun seem rather like an onion with smooth spherical shells, each one with a different temperature. For a long time, astronomers did indeed think of the sun in this way. However, we now know that while the sun, while this idea of layers, the photosphere, chromosphere, transition region, and superhot corona describes the big picture fairly well, the sun's atmosphere is really more complicated with hot and cool regions intermixed. For example, clouds of carbon monoxide gas with temperatures colder than 4,000 Kelvin have now been found at the same height above the photosphere as the much hotter gas of the chromosphere. The corona. The outermost part of the sun's atmosphere is called the corona. By the way, the word corona comes from a crown, so actually it looks like a big fiery crown uh, around the sun. Like the chromosphere, the corona was first observed during total eclipses. Unlike the chromosphere, the corona has been known for many centuries. It was referred to by the Roman historian Plutarch and was discussed in some detail by Kepler. The corona extends for millions of kilometers above the photosphere, and it emits about half as much light as the full moon. The reason we don't see this light until an eclipse occurs is the overpowering brilliance of the photosphere. Just as bright city lights make it difficult to see faint stars, I guess my analogy instead would be just as the sun <laughs> during the day makes it difficult to see faint starlight, so too does the intense light from the photosphere hide the faint light from the corona. While the best time to see the corona from Earth is during a total solar eclipse, it can be observed easily from orbiting spacecraft. Its brighter parts can now be photographed with a special instrument, a coronagraph, that removes the sun's glare from the image with an occulting disk. So really, it just puts a big circular piece of material so that it blocks out the sun so that we can take pictures of the corona. Studies of its spectrum show the corona to be very low in density. At the bottom of the corona, there are only about a billion atoms per cubic centimeter. That's 10 to the ninth. Compare that with about 10 to the 16th atoms per cubic centimeter in the upper atmosphere and 10 to the 19th molecules per cubic centimeter at sea level in Earth's atmosphere. The corona extends out very rapidly at greater heights where it corresponds to a high vacuum by Earth's laboratory standards. The corona extends so far into space, far past Earth, that here on our planet we are technically living in the sun's atmosphere. Now let's think about the solar wind. One of the most remarkable discoveries about the sun's atmosphere is that it produces a stream of charged particles, mainly protons and electrons, that we call the solar wind. Just to note, a proton is simply ionized hydrogen. So the hydrogen is ionized and it's electrons. That's what we call the solar wind. 
These particles flow outward from the sun into the solar system at a speed of about 400 kilometers per second. That's about a million miles per hour. The solar wind exists because the gases in the corona are so hot and moving so rapidly that they cannot be held back by solar gravity. This wind was actually discovered by its effects on the charged tails of comets. <laughs> in a sense, we can see the comet tails blow in the solar breeze, the way wind socks at an airport or curtains in an open window flutter on Earth. Although the solar wind material is very, very rarefied, rarefied is just a scientific term for has low density, the sun has an enormous surface area. Astronomers estimate that the sun is losing about one to two million tons of material each second through this wind. Although it sounds like a lot, it's so trivial compared to the enormous mass of the sun that it can be neglected as we study the sun. Side note, trivial just means really small, and neglected means we can ignore it. From where in the sun does the solar wind emerge? In visible photographs, the solar corona appears, appears fairly uniform and smooth. X-ray and extreme ultraviolet pictures, however, show that the corona has loops, plumes, and both bright and dark regions. Large dark regions of the corona that are relatively cool and quiet are called coronal holes. In these regions, magnetic field lines stretch far out into space away from the sun, rather than looping back to the surface as prominences do. The solar wind comes predominantly from coronal holes, where gas can stream away from the sun into space unhindered by magnetic fields. Hot coronal gas, on the other hand, is present mainly where magnetic fields have trapped and concentrated it. At the surface of Earth, we are protected, to some degree, from the solar wind by our atmosphere and Earth's magnetic field. However, the magnetic field lines that come from Earth at the north and south magnetic poles, uh, charged particles are there accelerated by the solar wind and can follow the field down to our atmosphere. As the particles strike molecules of air, they cause them to glow, producing beautiful curtains of light called auroras, or the northern and southern lights. It's one of my favorite things. It's like natural neon lights in the sky. Although they come not so much from neon, more so from oxygen, nitrogen, that kind of thing. All right, there is a box at the end that says link to learning. And of course, it has a link to a video. Again, I encourage you to uh, come to the section and watch the video. It says, linked learning, this NASA video explains and demonstrates the nature of the auroras and their relationship to Earth's magnetic field. This is section 15.2 on the solar cycle. By the end of the section, you should be able to describe the sunspot cycle and more generally the solar cycle and explain how magnetism is the source of solar activity. Before the invention of the telescope, the sun was thought to be an unchanging and perfect sphere. We now know that the sun is in a perpetual state of change. Its surface is a seething, bubbling cauldron of hot gas. Areas that are darker and cooler than the rest of the surface come and go. Vast plumes of gas erupt into the chromosphere and corona. Occasionally, there are even giant explosions on the sun that send enormous streamers of charged particles in energy hurtling towards Earth. When they arrive, these can cause power outages and other serious effects on our planet. Sunspots. The first evidence that the sun changes 
came from studies of sunspots, which are large dark features seen on the surface of the sun caused by increased magnetic activity. They look darker because the spots are typically at a temperature of about 3800 Kelvin, whereas the bright regions that surround them are at about 5800 Kelvin. So in other words, the sunspots are cooler and they're about 65% the temperature of the surrounding regions. Occasionally, these spots are large enough to be visible by the unaided eye, and we have records going back over a thousand years from observers who noticed them when the haze or mist reduced the sun's intensity. The book has a note here that says, don't look at the sun <laughs> without special filters and careful instructions because it can cause permanent eye damage. Okay, while we understand that sunspots look darker because they are cooler, they are nevertheless hotter than the surfaces of many stars. If they could be removed from the sun, they would shine brightly. They appear dark only in contrast with the hotter, brighter photosphere around them. Individual sunspots come and go, with lifetimes that range from a few hours to a few months. If a spot lasts and develops, it usually consists of two parts an inner dark core, the umbra, and the surrounding less dark region, the penumbra. Many spots become much larger than Earth, and a few like the largest one shown in figure 1513 have reached diameters of over 140,000 kilometers. Frequently spots occur in groups of 2 to 20 or more. The largest groups are very complex and may have over a hundred spots. Like storms on Earth, sunspots are not fixed in position, but they drift slowly compared to the sun's rotation. By recording the apparent motions of the sunspots as the turning sun carried them across its disk, Galileo in 1612 demonstrated that the sun rotates on its axis with a rotation period of approximately one month. Our star turns in a west-to-east direction, like the orbital motions of the planets. The sun, however, is a gas and does not have to rotate rigidly the way a solid body like Earth does. Modern observations show that the speed of rotation of the sun varies according to latitude. That is, it's different as you go north or south of the sun's equator. The rotation period is about 25 days at the equator, 28 days at a latitude of 40 degrees, which is close to where Ashland is, and 36 days at a latitude of 80 degrees, which is close to the poles. We call this behavior differential rotation. So differential rotation is just when uh, an object rotates and different portions on the surface rotate at different speeds. The sunspot cycle. Over a span of 24 years, between 1826 and 1850, Heinrich Schwab, a German pharmacist and amateur astronomer, kept daily records of the number of sunspots. What he was really looking for was a planet inside the orbit of Mercury, which he hoped to find by observing its dark silhouette as it passed between the Earth and Sun. He failed to find the hoped-for planet, but his diligence paid off with an even more important discovery, the sunspot cycle. He found that the number of sunspots varied systematically in cycles about a decade long. What Schwab observed was that although individual spots are short-lived, the total number of visible uh, the total number visible on the sun at any one time was likely to be very much greater at certain times, the periods of sunspot maximum, than at other times, the periods of sunspot minimum. We now know that the sunspot maxima occur at an average interval of 11 years. But the intervals between successive maxima have ranged from as short as 9 years to as long as 14 years. During sunspot maxima, more than 100 spots can often be seen at once. 
Even then, less than one half of 1% of the sun's surface is covered by spots. During the sunspot minima, sometimes no spots are visible. The sun's activity reached its most recent maximum in 2014. This would indicate if 11 years is the exact number this time between the maxima, that the next solar maximum would be around 2025. There is a link to learning box, and of course there's a link to a video, and it says watch this brief video from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center that explains the sunspot, sunspot cycle. Magnetism in the solar cycle. And now that we have discussed the sun's activity cycle, you might be asking why does the sun change in such a regular way? Astronomers now understand that it is the sun's changing magnetic field that drives solar activity. Before we go on, I'm just going to say a couple of things that will help you hopefully understand the terminology. And it has to do with electrons in atoms. So if you remember, uh, an atom has a nucleus, and the nucleus has these positive things called protons, and most often it has also some neutrons, which don't have any charge at all. And around the nucleus you have electrons. And as it turns out, the number of uh, electrons is equal to the number of protons for uh, a regular atom. But the electrons, they're distributed in a funny way around the atom. They're sitting in particular locations called energy levels. And quantum mechanics comes in and says that the electrons can't sit at energy any energy level. There are specific energy levels that electrons in a given atom can occupy. And you can think of it as like um, a, a stairs going up to a second floor where each step has a particular location. There's, you know, a distance between each steps. And for most stairs, that's a, a regular interval. Um, but you can't really sort of like stand on, a ha on halfway between a step. There's no place for you. And it's similar with electrons. They can only sit at particular locations. But for electrons, the spacing is, is not the same between steps. It's, it's generally um, closer together in certain areas. And quantum mechanics says that, you know, electrons cannot sit between the levels. But the levels can change, and they can change when atoms bond to each other. They can also change when um, there's a magnetic field. So they're going to talk about energy levels for electrons. And one interesting thing, just to let you know, is when you um, shine particular wavelengths of light at uh, an atom, electrons can sometimes absorb those particular wavelengths because they're ex they deliver exactly enough energy for the electron to jump to the next level. And when the um, uh, atom de-excites, so it lets go of that energy, the electron can fall back to its original location and emit light of a specific color. And that color corresponds to um, the, the wavelength corresponding to the energy level that the electron jumps down. So when they talk about emission lines, they're talking about um, basically uh, wavelengths of light that are emitted by electrons as they de-excite or let go of some of the energy. And when they talk about absorption lines, they're talking about the wavelengths of light that are absorbed by atoms and electron to help them transition from a lower to a higher energy level. Okay, well, <laughs> that's probably more than you needed to know about levels, but um, they're going to talk about this a little bit. Okay, so the solar magnetic field is, a measure, is measured using a property of atoms called the Zeeman effect. 
Recall from radiation and spectra that an atom has many energy levels, four electrons, and that spectral lines are formed when the electrons shift from one level to another. If each energy level is precisely defined, then the difference between them is also quite precise. As an electron changes levels, the result is a sharp, narrow spectral line, either an absorption or emission line, depending on whether the electron absorbs energy or emits energy in a transition. In the presence of a strong magnetic field, each energy level is separated into several levels, very close to one another. So this would be like a single step, breaking into a lot of different in-between steps. The separation of the levels is proportional to the strength of the field. As a result, spectral lines formed in the presence of a magnetic field are not single lines, but a series of very closely spaced lines that correspond to subdivisions in the atomic energy levels. This splitting of lines in the presence of magnetic field is what we call the Zeeman effect. It's named after a Dutch scientist who first discovered it in 1896. Measurements of the Zeeman effect in the spectra of the light from sunspot regions show them to have strong magnetic fields. Bear in mind that magnets always have a north pole and a south pole. Whenever sunspots are observed in pairs or groups containing two principal spots, one of the spots usually has the magnetic polarity of a north-seeking magnetic pole, and the other has the opposite polarity. Moreover, during a given cycle, the leading, the leading spots of pairs or leading principal spots of groups in the northern hemisphere all tend to have the same polarity, whereas those in the southern hemisphere all tend to have the opposite polarity. So this is interesting. During the next sunspot cycle, the polarity of the leading spots is reversed in each hemisphere. So, for example, if during one cycle the leading spots in the northern hemisphere all have the polarity of a north-seeking pole, then the leading spots in the southern hemisphere would have the polarity of a south-seeking pole. During the next cycle, the leading spots in the northern hemisphere would have a south-seeking polarity, whereas those in the southern hemisphere would have a north-seeking polarity. Therefore, strictly speaking, the sunspot cycle does not repeat itself in regard to magnetic polarity until two 11-year cycles have passed. So, in other words, about every 11 years, the sun has more sunspots. You look at it and it has more um, sunspots. So you think, okay, well, there's something happening. But each time it has so many sunspots, it's as though its magnetic field is reversed. So what was once north is now south. And you have to wait another 11 years before it reverses again. So even though the solar activity itself, the cycle is 11 years, in terms of magnetism, it doesn't go back to the same state until two cycles have passed, so about 22 years later. All right, so you might wonder, why is the sun such a strong and complicated magnet? Astronomers have found that it's the sun's dynamo that generates the magnetic field, and we're very used to dynamos on Earth. So what is a dynamo? It's a machine that converts kinetic energy, the energy of motion, into electricity. We see this all the time in power plants when we see um, power plants coming from wind turbines that are converting that kinetic energy into electricity, or hydroelectric power plants where they funnel water through the bottom, and it's the water that rotates a turbine, and that motion, that rotation, that kinetic energy helps us create electricity. In the sun, the source of kinetic energy is the churning of the turbulent layers of ionized gas, aka plasma, within the sun's interior that we mentioned earlier. These generate electric currents, moving electrons, which in turn generate magnetic fields. So, 
I'm going to take another step aside. This is a crazy magical thing that physics is able to describe, but really its origin is in nature and it's a mystery and it's amazing. And that is that if you have a charged particle, so if you remember electrons carry negative charges, protons carry positive charges, and ions are, elect or are atoms with either extra electrons or fewer electrons, so they can be either positively or negatively charged. Anyway, if you have a charged particle and it moves, then you have created a magnetic field around that particle. Crazy thing. So any charged particle that is moving, or at least relative to something else looks like it's moving, has a magnetic field around it. You can do that, actually, just a note. If you have a stock, a sock with a lot of static electricity and you wave it around, you're creating a magnetic field. Crazy, isn't it? Okay. Most solar researchers agree that the solar dynamo, so the, the churning plasma, the churning charged particles inside the sun that create this magnetic field, the solar dynamo is located in the convection zone or in the interface layer between the convection zone and the radiative zone below it. As the magnetic field from the sun's dynamo interact, oh sorry, as the magnetic fields from the sun's dynamo interact, they break, reconnect, and rise through to the sun's surface. We should say that although we have good observations that show us how the sun changes during each solar cycle, it is still very difficult to build physical models of something as complicated as the sun that can account satisfactorily for why it changes. Researchers have not yet developed general generally accepted model that describes in detail the physical processes that control the solar cycle. Calculations do show that differential rotation, the idea that the sun, sun rotates at different rates, at different latitudes, and convection just below the solar surface can twist and distort the magnetic fields. This causes them to grow and then decay, regenerating with opposite polarity approximately every 11 years. The calculations also show that as the fields grow stronger near solar maximum, they flow from the interior of the sun towards its surface in the form of loops. When a large loop emerges from the solar surface, it creates regions of sunspot activity. The idea that magnetic loops offers a natural explanation of why the leading and trailing sunspots in an active region have opposite polarity is amazing. The leading sunspot coincides with one end of the loop and the trailing spot with the other end. Magnetic fields also hold the key to explaining why sunspots are cooler and darker than regions without strong magnetic fields. The forces produced by the magnetic field resist the motions of the bubbling columns of rising hot gases. Since these columns carry most of the heat from inside the sun to the surface by means of convection, and strong magnetic fields inhibit this con convection, the surface of the sun is allowed to cool in areas that have strong magnetic fields, aka sunspots. As a result, these regions are seen as darker and cooler areas. Beyond this general picture, researchers are still trying to determine why the magnetic fields are as large as they are, why the polarity of the field in each hemisphere flips from one cycle to the next, why the length of the solar cycle can vary from one cycle to the next, and why events like the Maunder Minimum occur. Linked Learning so there's a link to a video, and it says, in this video, solar scientist Holly Gilbert discusses the sun's magnetic field. Once again, I encourage you to visit the links in the link to learning boxes. So now we're in section 15.3.
which looks at its solar activity above the photosphere. And as a reminder, I like to think of the photosphere as something that I would see if I pulled out my camera and took a picture of the sun. That would be the photo that would be displayed using visible light. It's that first opaque layer of the sun that we would see if we could look at it. Just a reminder, don't stare at the sun. It's a bad idea. Okay, by the end of this section, you should be able to describe the various ways in which the solar activity cycle manifests itself, including flares, coronal mass ejections, prominences, and plages. Sunspots are not the only features that vary during a solar cycle. There are dramatic changes in the chromosphere and the corona as well. To see what happens in the chromosphere, we must observe the emission lines of, from elements such as hydrogen and calcium, which emit useful spectral lines at temperatures in that layer. The hot corona, on the other hand, can be studied by observations of the X-rays and extreme ultraviolet and other wavelengths at high energies that it emits. Plages and prominences So emission lines of hydrogen and calcium are produced in the hot gases of the chromosphere. Astronomers routinely photograph the sun through filters that transmit light only at the wavelengths that correspond to these emission lines. Pictures taken through these special filters show bright quote-unquote clouds in the chromosphere around sunspots. These bright regions are known as plages. These are regions within the chromosphere that have a higher temperature and density than their surroundings. The plages actually contain all the elements in the sun, not just hydrogen and calcium. It just happens that the spectral lines of hydrogen and calcium produced by these clouds are bright and easy to observe. Moving higher into the sun's atmosphere, we come to the spectacular phenomena called prominences, which usually originate near sunspots. They really are pretty. Eclipse observers often see prominences as red features rising above the eclipsed sun and reaching high into the corona. Some, the quiescent prominences, are graceful loops of plasma that can remain nearly stable for many hours or even days. The relatively rare eruptive prominences appear to send matter upward into the corona at high speeds, and the most active surge prominences may move as fast as 1,300 kilometers per second. That's about 3 million miles per hour. Some eruptive prominences have reached heights of more than 1 million kilometers above the photosphere. Earth would be completely lost inside one of these awesome displays. There's a figure that shows the approximate size of Earth relative to one of the looping prominences. And I'll just say it's Earth is really small. You could fit many Earths inside of one of the loops. Flares and coronal mass ejections. The most violent event on the surface of the sun is a rapid eruption of called a solar flare. A typical flare lasts for five to 10 minutes and releases a total amount of energy, get this, equivalent to perhaps a million hydrogen bombs. The largest flares last for several hours and emit enough energy to power the entire United States at its current rate of electrical consumption for not only one year, 100,000 years. Near sunspot maximum, small flares occur several times a day, and major ones may occur every few weeks. Flares, like the one shown in figure 15.21, are often observed in the red light of hydrogen, but the visible emission is only a tiny fraction of the energy released when a solar flare explodes. 
At the moment of the explosion, the matter associated with the flare is heated to temperatures as high as 10 million Kelvin. At such high temperatures, a flood of X-ray and ultraviolet high-energy radiation is emitted. Flares seem to occur when magnetic fields pointing in opposite directions release energy by interacting with and destroying each other, much as a stretched rubber band releases energy when it breaks. What's different about flares is that their magnetic interactions cover a large volume in the solar corona and reach, release a tremendous amount of electromagnetic radiation. In some cases, immense quantities of coronal material mainly protons and electrons, may also be ejected at high speeds, about 500 to 1,000 kilometers per second, into interplanetary space. Such a coronal mass ejection can affect Earth in a number of ways, which we will discuss in a section on space weather. There is a link to learning a box that says, See a coronal mass ejection recorded by the Solar Dynamics Observatory. And again, I encourage you to click on the link in that box. Active regions. To bring the discussion of the last two sections together, astronomers now realize that sunspots, flares, and bright regions in the chromosphere and corona tend to occur together on the sun in time and space. That is, they all tend to have similar longitudes and latitudes, but they are located at different heights in the atmosphere. Because they all occur together, they vary with the sunspot cycle. For example, flares are more likely to occur near a sunspot maximum, and the corona is much more conspicuous at that time. See figure 1522. A place on the sun where a number of these phenomena are seen is called an active region. As you might deduce from our earlier discussion, active regions are always associated with strong magnetic fields. We have reached the last section in chapter 15, and it's section 15.4 on space weather. By the end of the section, you should be able to explain what space weather is and how it affects Earth. In the previous sections, we have seen that some of the particles coming off the sun, either steadily in the solar wind or in great bursts like coronal mass ejections, will reach Earth and its magnetosphere. As a side note, Earth has magnetic field. It has a magnetic north pole and a magnetic south pole, and that field protects Earth, and that's called the magnetosphere. Protects Earth from solar winds and other such disturbing phenomena. Okay, so as if scientists did not have enough trouble trying to predict weather on Earth, <laughs> this means that they are now facing the challenge of predicting the effects of solar storms on Earth. This field of research is called space weather. When that weather turns stormy, our technology turns out to be at risk. With thousands of satellites in orbit, astronauts taking up long-term residence in the International Space Station, millions of people using cell phones, GPS, and wireless communication, and nearly everyone relying on the availability of dependable electric power, governments are now making major investments in trying to learn how to predict when solar storms will occur and how strongly they will affect Earth. Well, let's look at a little history. What we now study as space weather was first recognized, though not yet understood, in 1859 in what is now known as the Carrington Event. In early September of that year, two amateur astronomers, including Richard Carrington of England, independently observed a solar flare. 
This was followed a day or two later by a significant stolar storm reaching the region of Earth's magnetic field, which was soon overloaded with charged particles. As a result, aurora activity was intense and the northern lights were visible well beyond their normal locations near the poles, as far south as Hawaii and the Caribbean. The glowing lights in the sky were so intense that some people reported getting up in the middle of the night and thinking it must be daylight. The 1859 solar storm happened at a time when a new technology was beginning to tie people in the United States and some other countries together, the telegraph system. This was a machine and network for sending messages in code through overhead electrical wires, a bit like the very early version of the internet. The charged particles that overwhelmed the Earth's magnetic field descended toward our planet's surface and affected the wires in the telegraph system. Sparks were seen coming out of the exposed wires and out of the telegraph machines and systems offices. Imagine how frightening that must have been. The observation of the bright flare that preceded these events on Earth led to scientific speculation that a connection existed between solar activity and impacts on Earth. This was the beginning of our understanding of what today we call space weather. There is another link to learning box which I encourage you to visit. And it says, watch NASA scientists answer some questions about space weather and discuss some effects it can have in space and on Earth. Sources of space weather, three solar phenomena, coronal holes, solar flares, and coronal mass ejections account for most of the space weather that we experience. Coronal holes allow the solar wind to flow freely away from the sun, unhindered by solar magnetic fields. When the solar wind reaches Earth, as we saw, it causes Earth's magnetosphere to contract and then expand after the solar wind passes by. These changes can cause usually mild electromagnetic disturbances on Earth. More serious are the solar flares, which shower the upper atmosphere of Earth with X-rays, energetic particles, and intense ultraviolet radiation. The X-rays and ultraviolet radiation can ionize atoms in Earth's upper atmosphere, and the freed electrons can build up a charge on the surface of a spacecraft. When this static charge discharges, it can damage the electronics in the spacecraft, just as you can receive, receive a shock when you walk across a carpet in your stocking feet on a, in a dry climate and then touch a light switch or some other metal object. Just a side note, we're so grateful for the atmosphere because it protects us from a lot of x-rays and more of the dangerous UV radiation that could cause a lot of problems to people on Earth. So, yay atmosphere. Most disruptive are the coronal mass ejections. A coronal mass ejection is an erupting bubble of tens of millions of tons of glass blown away from the sun into space. When this bubble reaches Earth a few days later, after leaving the sun, it heats up the ionosphere, which expands and reaches further into space. As a consequence, the friction between the atmosphere and spacecraft increases, dragging satellites to lower altitudes. So you can imagine that the, you can picture this. Okay, you have satellites going around Earth, and the satellites do experience some of Earth's atmosphere, but not a lot, because most of Earth's atmosphere is pulled down to Earth by gravity. But what happens is, when you get some of the coronal mass ejection material that reaches Earth, it'll heat up the atmosphere and cause it to expand. And what that means is that those satellites now have to travel through more atmosphere, and so there is more friction. And when they slow down, they fall to lower altitudes. So that's just a physical phenomenon. 
Okay, at the time of a particularly strong flare and coronal mass ejection in March 1989, the system responsible for tracking some 19,000 objects orbiting the Earth temporarily lost track of 11,000 of them because their orbits were changed by the expansion of Earth's atmosphere. During the solar maximum, a number of satellites are brought to such low altitude that they are destroyed by friction within the atmosphere. Both the Hubble Space Telescope and the International Space Station require re-boosts to higher altitudes so that they can remain in orbit. Solar storm damage on Earth. If you remember, I mentioned something about charged particles, and when they move, they create magnetic fields. That's just a fact of nature, and physics loves to look at it. The opposite is also true. When you change a magnetic field, you create an electrical current, or at least an electric field. So they're going to talk about that a little bit at the beginning of this part of the section. I'm just warning you, in case it sounds foreign, that's okay. <laughs> when a coronal mass ejection reaches Earth, it distorts Earth's magnetic field. Since a changing magnetic field induces an electrical current, the coronal mass ejection accelerates electrons, sometimes to very high speeds. These quote-unquote killer electrons can penetrate deep into satellites, sometimes destroying their electronics and permanently disabling operation. This has happened with some of the communication satellites that we have. Disturbances in Earth's magnetic field can cause disruptions in communications, especially cell phone and wireless systems. Oh no. In fact, disruptions can be expected to occur several times a year during a solar maximum. Remember, the next one is probably 2025, so don't blame the cell phone company. Changes in Earth's magnetic field due to coronal mass ejections can also cause surges in power lines large enough to burn out the transformers and cause major power outages. So once again, not always the utility company's fault. For example, in 1989, parts of Montreal and Quebec province in Canada were without power for up to nine hours as a result of a major solar storm. Electrical outages due to coronal mass ejections are more likely to occur in North America than in Europe because North America is closer to Earth's magnetic pole, where the currents induced by coronal mass ejections are strongest. Besides changing the orbits of satellites, coronal mass ejections can also distort the signals sent by them. These effects can be large enough to reduce the accuracy of GPS-derived positions so that they cannot meet the limits required for airplane systems, which must know their positions to within 160 feet. Such, such disruptions caused by coronal mass ejections have occasionally forced the Federal Avi Aviation Administration to restrict flights for minutes or, in a few cases, even, even days. So sometimes delays at airports are because of the sun, not because of airport logistics. Isn't that fascinating? Solar storms also expose astronauts, passengers, and high-flying airplanes, and even people on the surface of Earth to increased amounts of radiation. Astronauts, for example, are limited in the total amount of radiation to which they can be exposed during their careers. A single ill-timed solar burst could end an astronaut's career. This problem becomes increasingly serious as astronauts spend more time in space. For example, the typical daily dose of radiation aboard the Russian Mir space station was equivalent to about eight chest x-rays. One of the major challenges in planning the human exploration of Mars is devising a way to protect astronauts from high-energy solar radiation. Advanced warning of solar storms would help us minimize their disruptive effects. Power networks could be run at less than their full capacity so that they could absorb the effects of power surges. 
Communication networks could be prepared for malfunctions and have backup plans in place. Spacewalks could be timed to avoid major solar outbursts. Scientists are now trying to find ways to predict where and when flares and coronal mass ejections will occur, and whether they will be big, fast events, or small, slow ones with little consequence for Earth. The strategy is to relate changes in the appearance of small active regions and changes in local magnetic fields on the sun to subsequent eruptions. However, right now, our predictive capability is still quite poor, and so the only real warning we have is from actually seeing coronal mass ejections and flares occur. Since a coronal mass ejection travels outward at about 500 kilometers per second, an observation of an eruption provides several days' warning at, a, at the distance of Earth. However, the severity of the impact on Earth depends on how the magnetic field associated with the coronal mass ejection is oriented relative to Earth's magnetic field. The orientation can be measured only when the coronal mass ejection flows past a satellite we have put up for this purpose. However, it is located only about an hour upstream from Earth. Space weather predictions are now available online to scientists and the public. Outlooks are given a week ahead, and bulletins are issued when there is an event that is likely to be of interest to the public, and warnings and alerts are posted when an event is imminent or already underway. There's a link to Learning Box that says, to find public information and alerts about space weather, you can turn to the National Space Weather Prediction Center or Space Weather for consolidated information from many sources. Of course, there are two links in this box. Fortunately, we can expect calmer space weather for the next few years, since the most recent solar maximum, which was relatively weak, occurred in 2014, and scientists believe the current solar cycle to be one of the least active in recent history. We expect more, more satellites to be launched that will allow us to determine whether coronal mass ejections are headed toward Earth and how big they are. Models are being developed that will then allow scientists to use early information about coronal mass ejections to predict its likely impact on Earth. The hope is that by the time of the next maximum solar weather forecasting, we'll have some of the predictive capability that meteorologists have achieved for terrestrial weather at Earth's surface. However, the most difficult events to predict are the largest and most damaging storms hurricanes on Earth, and extreme rare storm events on the Sun. Thus, it is inevitable that the Sun will continue to surprise us. Okay, there is a box that has an example calculation in me. As someone who loves math, teaches physics, and is an engineer by trade, I'm going to tell you basically what it says. I'm not going to make you suffer through it, but I'll let you see how easy this can be. So it's basically saying that if something leaves the sun and is traveling towards Earth, if you know the speed at which it's traveling and if you know the distance between Earth and the sun, you can calculate how long it will take to reach Earth. And it's really similar to saying you have a friend in Portland who's going to drive to Ashland to meet you. And let's say they're going to travel at a constant velocity. If you know the distance between Ashland and Portland and you know how quickly they're traveling, then you should be able to calculate how long it will take them to reach you. So the basic uh, concept is this. Velocity is defined as distance traveled over time. Actually, if you want to be precise, that's actually the definition of speed, but we're going to use the word speed and velocity, velocity interchangeably. So velocity is distance over time.
And it's an equation, velocity equals distance divided by time. If you were to rearrange the equation, you would find that time is equal to distance divided by velocity. So if you know how far something is needs to travel and you know how quickly it's traveling, you just take the distance, you divide it by the velocity, and you can figure out how long it takes to reach wherever it's traveling to. So the example says, suppose you observe a major solar flare while astronauts are orbiting Earth. Let's say the average speed of the solar wind from that flare is 400 kilometers per second. The distance to the sun between the sun and earth is 1.496 times 10 to the 8 kilometers. The question is how long will it be before the charged particles ejected from the sun during the flare reach the space station or reach earth? Basically the same thing. So all you would need to do is take that distance, 1.496 times 10 to the 8 kilometers, and divide it by the velocity, 400 kilometers per second. And if you do that, you get 3.74 times 10 to the 5th seconds. Now that is a lot of seconds. Who can think in terms of seconds? So a couple of conversions, and then you can have that quantity in terms of days. <laughs> the upshot is it would take 4.3 days for an ejection traveling at 400 kilometers per second from the sun to reach Earth. And I know it says International Space Station, but they're really close to each other, Earth and the International Space Station, compared to the distance between Earth and Sun. So isn't that interesting? You may know that it takes light eight minutes to travel from the sun to the Earth. And so you can see that this uh, ejection, this solar flare, these charged particles are traveling a lot less quickly because it'll take them 4.3 days to reach Earth. Anyway, very fun stuff. Thanks for listening to that. Earth's climate and the sunspot cycle. Is there a connection? While the sun rises faithfully every day at a time that can be calculated precisely, scientists have determined that the sun's energy output is not truly constant, but varies over the centuries by a small amount, probably less than 1%. We've seen that the number of sunspots varies with the time between sunspot maxima of about 11 years, and that number of sunspots at maximum is not always the same. Considerable evidence shows that between the years 1645 and 1715, the number of sunspots, even at sunspot maximum, was much lower than it is now. This interval of significantly low sunspot numbers was first noted by Gustav Sporer in 1887 and then by E.W. Maunder in 1890. It is now called the Maunder Minimum. The variation in the number of sunspots over the past three centuries is shown in figure 1526. Besides the Maunder minimum in the 17th century, sunspot numbers were somewhat lower during the first part of the 19th century than they are now. This period is called the Little Maunder Minimum. When the number of sunspots is high, the sun is active in various other ways as well. And as we will see in several sections below, some of this activity affects Earth directly. For example, there are more aur auroral displays when the sunspot number is high. Auroras are caused when energetically charged particles from the sun interact with Earth's magnetosphere, and the sun is more likely to spew out particles when it is active and the sunspot number is high. Historical accounts also indicate that auroral activity was abnormally low during, throughout, the last, throughout the several decades of the Maunder Minimum. The Maunder Minimum was a time of exceptionally low temperatures in Europe. 
so low that this period is described as the Little Ice Age. This coincidence in time caused scientists to try to understand whether small changes in the sun could affect the climate on Earth. There is clear evidence that it was unusually cold in Europe during part of the 17th century. The River Thames in London froze at least 11 times, ice appeared in the oceans off the coast of southeast England, and low summer temperatures led to short growing seasons and poor harvests. However, whether and how changes on the sun on this timescale influence Earth's climate is still a matter of debate among scientists. Other small changes in climate like the Little Ice Age have occurred and have had their impacts on human history. For example, explorers from Norway first colonized Iceland and then reached Greenway by 986 AD. From there, they were able to make repeated visits to the northeastern coasts of North America, including Newfoundland, between about 1000 and 1350 AD. The ships of the time did not allow the Norse explorers to travel all the way to North America directly, but only from Greenland, which served as a station for further exploration. Most of Greenland is covered by ice, and the Greenland station was never self-sufficient. Rather, it depended on imports of food and other goods from Norway for its survival. When the Little Ice Age began in the 13th century, voyaging became very difficult, and support of the Greenland colony was no longer possible. The last known contact with it was made by a ship from Iceland blown off course in 1410. When European ships again sailed, began to visit Greenland in 1577, the entire colony there had disappeared. The estimated dates for these patterns of migration follow what we know about solar activity. Solar activity was unusually high between 1100 and 1250, which includes the time when the first European contacts were made with North America. Activity was low from 1280 to 1340, and there was a little ice age, which was about the time regular contact with North America and between Greenland and Europe stopped. One must be cautious, however, about assuming that low sunspot numbers or variations in the Earth's output of energy caused the little ice age. There is no satisfactory model that can explain how a reduction in solar activity might cause cooler temperatures on Earth. An alternative possibility is that the cold weather during the Little Ice Age was related to volcanic activity. Volcanoes can eject aerosols, tiny droplets or particles into the atmosphere that efficiently reflect sunlight. Observations show, for example, that the Pinatubo eruption in 1991 ejected SO2 aerosols into the atmosphere, which reduced the amount of sunlight reaching Earth's surface enough to lower global temperatures by 0.4 degrees Celsius. That would be almost 0.8 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Satellite data show that the energy output from the sun during a solar cycle varies by only about 0.1%. We know of no physical process that would explain how such a small variation could cause global temperature changes. The level of solar activity may, however, have other effects. For example, although the sun's total energy output varies by only 0.1% during a solar cycle, its extreme ultraviolet radiation is 10 times higher at times of solar maximum than at solar minimum. This large variation can affect the chemistry and temperature structure of the upper atmosphere. One effect might be a reduction in the ozone layer and the cooling of the stratosphere near the Earth's poles. This, in turn, could change the circulation patterns of winds aloft and hence tracks of global storms. 
There is such there is some recent evidence that variations in the regional rainfall correlate better with solar activity than does global temperature on Earth. But as you can see, the relationship between what happens on the sun and what happens to Earth's climate over the short term is still an area that scientists are investigating and debating. Whatever the effects of solar activity may be on local rainfall or temperature patterns, we want to emphasize one important idea. Our climate change data and the models developed to account for the data consistently show that solar variability is not the cause of global warming that has occurred during the past 50 years. Well, we've reached the end of chapter 15, and this is a summary of each section. 15.1, the structure and composition of the sun. The sun, our star, has several layers beneath the visible surface, the core, the radiative zone, and the convective zone. These, in turn, are surrounded by a number of layers that make up the solar atmosphere. In order of increasing distance from the center of the sun, they are the photosphere, with a temperature that ranges between 4,500 Kelvin to about 6,800 Kelvin, the chromosphere with a typical temperature of 10,000 Kelvin, the transition region, a zone that may be only a few kilometers thick, where the temperatures increase rapidly from 10,000 Kelvin to a million Kelvin, and the corona with temperatures of a few million Kelvin. The sun's surface is modeled with upwelling convection currents seen as hot, bright granules. Solar wind particles stream out of the out into the solar system through coronal holes. When such particles reach the vicinity of Earth, they produce auroras, which are the strongest near the Earth's magnetic poles. Hydrogen and helium together make up 98% of the mass of the Sun, whose composition is much more characteristic of the universe at large than is the composition of Earth. 15.2, the solar cycle. Sunspots are dark regions where the temperature is up to 2,000 degrees Kelvin cooler than the surrounding photosphere. Their motion across the sun's disk allows us to calculate how fast the sun turns on its axis. The sun rotates more rapidly at its equator, where the rotation period is about 25 days, than near the poles, where the period is slightly longer than 36 days. The number of visible sunspots varies according to a sunspot cycle that averages 11 years in length. Spots frequently occur in pairs. During a given 11-year cycle, all the leading spots in the northern hemisphere have the same magnetic polarity, whereas all the leading spots in the southern hemisphere have the opposite polarity. In the subsequent 11-year cycle, the polarity reverses. For this reason, the magnetic activity cycle of the Sun is understood to last 22 years. This activity cycle is connected with the behavior of the Sun's magnetic field, but the exact mechanism is not yet understood. 15.3 Solar Activity Above the Photosphere Signs of more intense solar activity, an increase in the number of sunspots, as well as prominences, plages, and solar flares, and coronal mass ejections, all tend to occur in active regions. That is, in places on the sun, with the same latitude and longitude, but at different heights in the atmosphere. Active regions vary with the solar cycle, just like sunspots do. 15.4 Space Weather Space weather is the effect of solar activity on our own planet, both in our magnetosphere and on Earth's surface. Coronal holes allow more of the sun's material to flow out into space. 
Solar flares and coronal mass ejections can cause auroras, disrupt communications, damage satellites, and cause power outages on Earth. That's the end of the chapter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. That's chapter 15, and I hope the reading was helpful to you. I'll look forward to recording chapters 16 and 17 for you for next week. Have a great rest of the week, everybody.